0: And welcome to Living Being.
1: I'm Chris Park.
0: I'm Verity Sharp. I'm Patrick Randall. And this is the podcast where we're going to celebrate everything that's wondrous about bees. So, in this episode, I'm going to be talking to Bridget Strawbridge, who is somebody who's very active on the kind of bee scene in general, isn't she, Chris? You, you must have come across her.
1: Bridget's amazing. And she has expanded her knowledge into all bees, not just honeybees, but bumblebees and solitary bees, you know, mason bees and minor bees and cuckoo bees, and, and understands how they are and what they need. She's great.
0: And she hasn't actually been doing it that long. I mean, she's written a book called Dancing with Bees, which is lovely, and it tells this story of... Kind of how she just kind of had this Damascene moment about it all about twenty years ago I think. But she's she spoke at your club, didn't she? Yeah, um, she came, came to speak
2: to or she came to speak to the uh Kennett beekeepers. And I'd not I'd not long started in beekeeping. And I was I suppose everybody there was focused on the honeybee and uh and beekeeping itself. And she suddenly wowed everybody with all these facts and interesting uh narrative about different species of bees and how they were uh how they were amazing pollinators and and also a lot about flowers she's got an incredible knowledge about flowers
0: and and this is why i went to see her i actually recorded this um interview with her a couple of years ago now um for a program that we were doing at that time and i, I met her on the allotment and we kind of went around looking at everything that was growing there cuz she was making the point That lots of people think about getting honeybees and they get honeybees, but they don't necessarily then take that logical step of thinking about what they're going to feed them. You know, you get a dog or a cat, you wouldn't think not to think about that question. But I just think that's really interesting that people put a hive in the garden, but don't actually necessarily think about what they're going to eat, if eat is the right word.
2: No, that's right, and I think uh, I think a lot of the time the the beehive comes 1st is doesn't it? The bees and the beehive. What do you think, Chris? I mean, the, and of, often you know there may not be around if there's other beekeepers around, there may not be enough for, for for bees to forage on.
1: Yeah, there is an etiquette if you're going to start keeping bees to check out your local beekeepers and to see if you might be, you know, if your bees might be competing for forage or if your bees are closer to someone else's, and obviously to keep your bees healthy also. And but you know bees will travel up to four miles, but most of their forage comes within the first mile radius. So it's really important, I would say, to to make sure that your bees do have you know uh, forage and they're not competing, and that they've got a good diverse richness of, of forage, just like us. You know, uh, a, a well balanced diet is is good.
0: Okay, well let's. Uh see um where bridget takes us with this I, I love doing this um she her allotment is in dorset and it's on the flight path to somewhere or other so i have to slightly apologize for the amount of planes that go over when we're talking but um she's just such an enthusiast so yeah here's bridget
3: so this is a common carder
0: is he Bumblebee. okay
3: yeah she yeah
0: right seems quite
3: now you see that 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 tired sticking it her leg up she's posturing um, she's tired, she's, I'm going to put her on, um, the vipers be gloss in a minute, but she's only lifting her leg up to tell me. She's posturing.
0: What do you mean posturing?
3: She's saying, I can sting you, I can sting ah. you, back off. And you see, there are videos online talking about bees high-fiving. <laughs> she's American, obviously. Yeah, yeah, of course. She's not high-fiving. She's, she's just
0: saying. The she's bee, just warning if you're too you. close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they come won't too close. sting. This is the <sighs> other thing people think. Oh, we don't want bees. They're going to just sting everything. But they don't. They oh, won't they come don't. and actively sting, will they? No. They'll sting if you tread on it because they're they're being threatened. But...
3: Especially bumblebees. Um, bumblebees and this particular species very very placid. Beautiful. I'm going to go and put her on. One of the plants that we saw lots on the vipers' view
0: So that's why I've come to see you, Bridget, in fact. I'm with Bridget Strawbridge, um, who is passionate about bees, as I'm sure you've already picked up. Uh, But it is this question of forage. So in a garden, what should I be planting?
3: Right, well, first of all, don't just plant for your honeybee. So um, plant for all the bees, for all of the different wild bees and for other pollinators. And to do that, you need to start thinking in terms of the size of the bee, the type of the flower it accesses, the length of its tongue. So honeybees have got, um, I think their tongues are about, oh, I don't know, between six and seven millimetres long. So they are going to be in direct competition with, for instance, the bumblebees that have similar length tongues. So you need to plant more of the sorts of plants like cotoniaster or Sedum or um, you know anything that a honeybee likes. Plant loads more of that. But think beyond honeybees and beyond bees in general. And you see on the allotment here, we've got... So this this is mint, flowering mint, and you can see it's attracting hoverflies and these are actually white-tailed and buff-tailed bumblebees. So bees or pollinators with shortish tongues. Are all is there something here.
0: about this mint flower that tells us what sort of bee might attract it? I mean, is there a way of you know maybe we don't know our plants as well as as most, and you know is there something about the flower shape that will give us an indicator when we're kind of looking in garden centres and well, things like that?
3: We, yes um so if you if you look at this this is short, it has a very short um corolla, so so you can tell straight away that that's the petals that, right? that, that's that's the bit from the access to the tip, and the nectar's down here at the bottom, so a bee with a very long tongue, a bee with a tongue, say that's fifteen millimeters long, would s- struggle and it would find it awkward to get its tongue in there, yeah so you're looking at this and you think, right, probably, not definitely, but probably that would suit a short-tongued pollinator and then you look at what's on the plant and you know lo and behold they are all short-tongued pollinators on this plant um, and the, the honeybee is a
0: short-tongued pollinator that's the Do way you to know, think about that. it's
3: it's it's not called it's called a medium tongue but actually if you look at the scales of tongues so tongues go from between about um, 0.5 millimeters through to about 15 um, to 20 millimeters honeybees are about six to seven so they are relatively short-tongued but they're not called short tongued. Okay. It's always complicated. It's so isn't complicated. It? Yeah. But yeah. they have the same length tongues as, um, uh, it, I think, as tree bumblebees. I always see, whenever you see honeybees on a plant, you also see tree bumblebees. So you think, okay, um, it, that plant, so Cotoniaster, is always covered in those two, and also early nesting bumblebees. So you, th- this is what you start to watch, and you start to see the same bees on this plant. And if you were to look at, um, if I see a plant somewhere that's got a deeper, um, flower, much deeper flower. You would find, say the beans and the, the beans over there. You see, or the morning. The, the runner beans, or, yeah, runner beans, um, and also also things like sweet peas. They have very deep, um, the the nectar's deep down. So that would take a long tongue bee. Short tongue bee wouldn't be able to access that.
0: They're a bit more like those sort of snapdragony type flowers as well, yes. aren't they? The sort of ones that need a little bit of a note, something to land on it and open it. Yes. And you go down. Yeah. in to the tube
3: and strength. Yes. But for a snapdragon, you need a big, strong bumblebee to force its way into the snapdragon. Yeah. So, so you, so you just mentioned that we've mentioned three different types of flowers. They're all different. They all attract different bees, different types of bees, with different um, abilities to access the nectar. So, so will and that's just bees. I mean, when you start to come on to, to butterflies and moths and, and hoverflies, it's another. You know, it just 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 gets bigger and bigger. Um, Where do you stand
0: on the sort of native? Should it be native wildflowers that we're concentrating on, not the cultivars with the double blooms mm. that are so tight? And you know,
3: if you're in your garden um, or on an allotment, and and I would plant anything. I would plant anything because lots of these, um, the non-natives actually have a longer flowering season. You know, some of the Mediterranean plants seem to flower later in the season, whereas our native plants, with with, with the weather changing at the end of the season, are not flowering in September and October when the pollinators still need them. So as long as you're not close to an area of native woodland, for instance, where they might escape, I would say plant any plants, plant native, plant wild um, and plant the cultivars as well, as Mm. long as they're not the the double-headed ones that the bees can't access.
0: And here we are standing in an allotment where lots of different people with lots of different creative ideas are getting going, aren't they? And the colour here is fantastic.
3: I know, I know. Sunflowers,
0: cornflowers, mint, all sorts of things. I'm going
3: to show you a wildflower here that we've planted. It's over here, look. Um, So, whole different plant here, okay? Um, Okay, so we've got a honeybee. This is wild mignonette. Um, It's not the sort of plant that you'll get in a garden centre, it's the sort of plant that you look up. um, and you plant and you just see how you go. And it's got, see these tiny little flowers. The honeybees love it. And the other bees that you find uh, on here, and there aren't any at the moment, maybe not warm enough for them, are some of the tiny, tiny, tiny solitary bees, the, um, the, the Laceoglossum bees and the Halictus bees. So they're bees with really short tongues, tiny, tiny bees, and they absolutely love this. But on, on your average um, on your average gardener, on your average allotment, if you were just, for instance, choosing the the cottage garden plants or the ones with the really deep, deep sort of flowers, then you wouldn't be planting for those bees with the tiny little tongues. Mm. Mm. So, so this is another one, and this is a wild one, and it's lots of the wild ones, um, and they, this still thrives. I mean, this has thrived through this. Well, you know what the weather's been like. Um, oh God, viper's bugloss is oh, nice. whoa, bee <laughs> yes. plant. So this is full of carder bees. This is usually common carder bee, and it is. See, see, so you start after a while. You go to a plant. You know, I can say to you, there, there will be common carder bees on this one, and there are. So, what's a carder bee? So this is a bumblebee, um, and it's one of our most common bumblebees. That's called the common carder bumblebee. Where does that name come from? Or was um, I don't know. Oh. I don't know why it's called. Carder. Oh, cause the carder bit because so there are. We have five or six bumblebees that, when they make their nest, they card moss. Um, to make the nest, so ah. they, they build it with um, sort of carded moss and the common carder bee, which is the one you it's get like in the gardens. Yeah. Um, yeah. You find a common carder bumblebee nest just beneath the surface somewhere. Um, you'll always find bits of bits of moss. It's always got lots of bits of moss.
0: So this is carder bees on Vipers bugloss, and let me just see. This is a, a flower that's got the tube going on, so I'm going to put it in as a medium-sized tongue yes. length. Yes. Is that about right?
3: Yes, Yeah. That's exactly right. And you get, and this is vipers bugloss, this this is, if so if you were to ask me to, to just choose one plant to plant for bees, I'd say vipers bugloss, um, a number of reasons, it has a long flowering season, um, this is excessively tall, I've never seen it this tall before, um, but it's open all hours, so the flowers might look to us as if, they're, so they're open, they're flowering, so we think, oh they've probably got pollen and nectar in, but plants tend to produce their pollen and nectar sometimes at different times of the day and sometimes at different times of their flowering life vipers bugloss if it's open is open for business it's like a cafe that's that you know there's always going to be coffee on tap so so that makes it fantastic and it's you see it's fairly accessible fairly easy to get down um, into the nectar in there so it's it's not not got a tight entrance and you'll see different size again there's just common carder bees on here but this is something I usually find covered in many many different species of bee.
0: And it's really attractive too. I oh, mean it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful
3: blue isn't it? Gosh it's beautiful. Yeah. It's going over now, like everything this year but um, and it's a biennial so so again it will it produces seeds. This is another good thing if you're if you're a beginner gardener, um, choose choose plants that self seed that are either perennials so they just keep coming back every single year or that will self seed and grow again, and we now have a succession of vipers bugloss. You know, We never have a year where we don't have vipers bugloss somewhere on the allotment, and it is fantastic. It's just an amazing plant. Um, And this as well, borage. So the borage flower, that refills with nectar every couple of minutes, so that's like a super plant. Because borage
0: honey is quite a a thing, isn't it? Yeah,
3: people grow fields of it, fields and fields of it. Um, And this, oh, oh, this one, none of them look like much at the moment, Um, but this is wild marjoram, okay, so the thing about wild marjoram um, is that it has higher sugar content in its nectar than pretty much any other plant that you grow, so I think the sugar content in this is about 80% or something, whereas in something like a snake head fritillary it might be 8% sugar so so this high reward yeah. high reward nectar um, so that's another I saw these different uh, different whys and wherefores and lavender and you can't go wrong with lavender lavender is best for the longer tongue bees um, so if you look here although that's a small flower to us but look at how deep oh yeah what you were saying earlier yeah you see, this is the thing, you get
0: up close to a very familiar plant like lavender, which you just sort of think is is you know, this kind of very brackety type plant. And actually to go up close to an individual flower is tells a whole different story.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, right. So Oh hello. You see how look at the queen. Whoa. Wow. Queen bumble. Totally. <laughs> Big. You could did you could you hear the different sounds? Yeah. The deeper bushes. Much she made? deeper. This is lamb's ear. Um, stachis and um, we plant this just actually the bumblebees adore it but we plant it just for one solitary bee we plant it for the wool carder solitary bee so not to be confused with the common carder bumblebee so the female wool carder um, when she lines her nest she lines it with so she comes down to you see the hair the beautiful hairiness yeah just she comes like down look, she scrapes oh, yeah. Like that. Wow. And then she takes that little bundle of hair back in the same way as a mason bee would with mud or a leaf cutter would with leaves, and she limes the cells um, and lays her eggs, puts pollen in it and lays eggs. So I know if we have a big clump of this, um, it'll provide the, the hair for the wool carder. But best of all, it means that the male wool carders that are extremely territorial will come and they come and they patrol. And they sit backwards and forwards like this. Or over the stackers. All over it, waiting. And then if a bumblebee comes, they will literally bash the bumblebee off. They've got three sharp prongs at wow. the end of their tail um, that, that they will attack a large bumblebee with. So it's great to see all of that. Amazing. So you watch all of this, this funny behaviour going on. Mm. And again, you see not just the little patch. There's a little patch over there. Um, and they'll visit it, but here, huge patches, planting huge patches, um, and it just makes it a lot, lot easier for the bees. Um, And then, so this one, Michaelmas daisy, is flowering quite early for Michaelmas daisy. So
0: the Michaelmas daisy is, you know, quite often I hear this thing, if you want to plant for bees, plant these open flowers, the sort of more daisy-like flower, which is kind of what that is, and it's fascinating you say, you know, oh, we've got to look at all these tiny, tiny flowers, but that is more the sort of standard perception. You know, yes. the daisy open flowers will be good for yeah. pollination.
3: Yes, and, and that one is. I mean, that's good um, That's good for, for far more than, see that there's a hoverfly on it now. Yes. Um, it's good for lots of butterflies as well, but it's also a later flowering plant. It, it's terribly important to be thinking beyond the summer um, rather than just thinking about colour in your garden or plants for bees. Think beyond the summer. And Michaelmas daisy, fills that gap but again it's a daisy it's open it's n- that's no good for the long-tongued bees the long-tongued bees need things like um, so red red clover has is deep for long-tongued bees all of the the vetches, the peas the beans um, things like foxgloves hollyhocks so these are big big open funnels funnels and bells rather than the daisies and the daisies all the daisy families all the daisy family um, plants are, are for the more the short and the medium mm. tongued bees are great so from your point of view if you're bringing honeybees into your garden um, and you're thinking purely um, from a um, not um, taking away from the existing native bees you want to be planting loads more daisies that, that sort of, and, and things like the mints and the honeybee plants but then separately if you want to help bees and that's you know, that's what you what are talking about, you would then introduce a whole load more flowers, this mm. whole variety, so that you are catering for all their needs. And one of the things that like, you think is if it flies straight past your garden, <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't stop, you know, what, what are you missing in yeah. your garden? Oh, it just makes me feel so
0: excited about, you know, doing exactly that, building a kind of tapestry. But how do we know when we've got enough? How much is enough forage for a hive mm. of bees? We've got a third of an acre, probably. <sighs>
3: you can't do that no. in your inner third of an acre because because bees i mean you've got so many bees and they need I, I don't know i'm not quite sure what how much um how many foraging trips they need to take in a day or a week or, or their little short lifetime just to make a teaspoonful of honey but they are crop you know they need crops they need huge mm. huge areas that's the other thing is you see the mignonette here so there's lots of it um there's no point just planting for bees, a tiny little bunch of mignonette here and another bunch of mignonette over there and a little bit of mint, um, you know, and a, a, a little michaelmas daisy here, because the bees will use less energy if they can come and, and forage, sort of, without spending energy to go to the other side of the allotment or to cross the road. And it's because there's a lot of mignonette here, this is the sort of plant that that bee will go home and waggle dance about, mm. because there's, there's enough of it to bring Quite a few honeybees.
0: I think I clocked that this year because I did almost, um, by chance, do a load of phacelia seed. i just going
3: to mention of oh. yeah,
0: yeah, And it did exactly that. It was a carpet yeah. of bees yeah. all summer long. And because it was a new bed, I just did the whole bed. Oh, brilliant. Yeah.
3: We've done that. We have had this allotment. I mean, we've inherited little parts of it bit by bit, and we always start with phacelia. OK. Um, it, and the other interesting thing about phacelia because it is one of the most um, fantastic... Plants for beneficial insects, as they say. So, and again, not all pollinators. So that was the other thing I just meant to say is, they are floral visitors. They're visiting the flowers. They're not all necessarily pollinating. Some of them might not. But, but with facelia, if you have facelia on an allotment, um, you sometimes risk some of your vegetables not being pollinated because. Oh, really? They're so busy yes. <laughs> on the facelia that actually. Gosh, that's amazing. So all these other little. Yeah. sort of lateral thinking things as well but for, yeah. you, for see, again, and you saw with a great patch, you, you get a huge amount oh, of pollinators. it's just wonderful and your garden is
0: alive know, and you know, know, this is what we want. It's very exciting. But this is the big question isn't it, you know, in terms of how much forage and this is what, you know, these arguments um, for not keeping bees are all about because on mm. a garden you cannot plant enough and we are in a sense lucky in that we literally border farmland and we have got huge fields of rape mm. and what have you around so hopefully um, you know that's okay but you know that if if we're, we're trying to encourage people to keep bees in order to even get some sort of understanding about pollinators it's a great way of doing that but maybe it's not realistic because there will not be enough forage for all well, these creatures
3: you are you're, so you're not urban are you but you're you're not in a great big agricultural area um, yeah, we
0: are probably. Are. We would be considered in, a, in an agricultural area. Yeah, I
3: think, so, so there's two things. Firstly, the urban beekeeping, I think, um, that, I think that's a problem. You know, the London rooftop urban beekeeping. Um, if that, that will reach a tipping point where if so many people are bringing in honeybee hives um, to an area where, where the native bees might already be struggling, then there's there aren't crops for the honeybees to feed on so then there's bound to be competition so that's one end of the scale then there's this then there's hobby beekeepers in the countryside that's that's not going to cause a huge problem but what is a problem and where there has been research i think so there was research done um i can't remember when but in 2007 2008 i read a paper then um, so this was done in Scotland by Dave Goulson and, and his team. And they looked at areas where honeybee hives were being bought in commercially en masse. And they, they looked at the impact that those hives were having on local um, bumblebee populations. And they, they looked at four different bumblebee um, species. And there was an impact. The bumblebees were smaller. They were, they, they were smaller. And they were not foraging at the same times of day as they usually forage whilst the honeybees were there so there there was absolutely evidence that the um, the introduction of lots and lots and lots of commercial hives was out competing the local native bees and that 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 is a problem I mean it's a problem in itself I think I don't I just don't, don't like that that happens but in the United States where they, where, you know they've got the almond orchards they've reached a stage now and this is at the the worst end of the scale they've reached a stage where there are no native bees left because the honeybees have competed them, and now the honeybees are struggling with, with you know the bee decline CCD or whatever else or um, all, the, all the problems um, there's an, no plan B the native bees have gone so so it's a problem it 's a problem on the vast scale mm. with mass huge commercial beekeeping, and I also think and people are beginning to see that it's a problem for um, urban areas um, I think so there's an association, the London Beekeeping Association, lots of beekeeping associations are starting to pick up on this and they're starting to advise their members, their um, beekeepers, to, to plant for the native pollinators as well. So I think it's something that people are becoming aware of. Well, you have, you? Mm. It's one of the things mm. that, that you've become aware of almost straight away. The
0: other thing, of course, is neonicotinoids. Oh. We now have a band, <laughs> don't we? Yeah. But there was, you know, this whole range of perfect pollinator plants yeah. that we were all being mm. sold. And now, of course, everybody's realised that actually maybe they're not because the treated seed um, actually creates a plant that is damaging to bees. I mean, I it know. never ends, does I it? Know. So so now what? we go going to the garden centre. What should we be thinking? How do how we approach that?
3: Um, so... For me, I I actually would not go to a garden centre now unless I knew, um, unless I could speak to the the owners or the managers and establish that the plants had not been treated with any type of chemicals um, because I would not want to bring a plant like that into my garden. Um, There are some, um, not garden centres, some big supermarkets and outlets that you can go to safely now, and I know that B&Q have removed neonicotinoids um, or I think already from um, from their supply line, and I know Aldi have. I think Homebase are in the process of doing that. But but I I would work myself on better safe than sorry. And, and I, it's easy for me to say this, you know. Um, we've got an allotment. We know how to plant from seeds. I know how to take cuttings. Um, but if I wasn't a gardener, um, I would be looking online and sourcing plugs from. Uh, so there are lots of places you put in organic supplies. I know doesn't need to be organically certified but there are plenty plenty of places that you can buy um, plants that have not been laced with neonicotinoids or any of the other pesticides it's not just the neonicotinoids it's it's all the others as well I I would just if you if you are able to source them from someone um, who has grown them organically or from a car boot sale or from the side of the road you know, from a friend or a neighbour who grows their own plants and has surpluses, Mm -hmm. I'd every time do that, Mm -hmm. every time.
0: And I'm a big, you know, grow from seed person. I I just love all of that, that kind of nurturing. But the seed as well, right? We need to be buying organic seed because that could have been treated if we don't do that. You
3: can tell if it's been treated because if something's been treated with neonicotinoids, it's coloured. It's it's bright red and yellow and blue and green. So if you buy um, non-organic seeds, if you buy a a packet of... um, Or mignonette seeds or borage seeds or whatever, and they are natural, they look natural, then you're okay. You're okay with that because they haven't been treated. So, seed wise, it's much, much safer to do it from seed, Mm. from seeds or cuttings. Far, far safer.
0: Just so much wonderful advice there from Bridget Strawbridge. I love the way that she thinks of everything on her allotment as being on a bee level Um, and just incredible amounts of information about bee tongue length. That never even occurred to me before, Um, affecting which forage that they choose.
1: Just imagine being a bee, you know, all day long having your tongue in flowers. What a life. Isn't that great? (laughs) Nectar (laughs) plenty, you know. (laughs)
0: It sounds blissful, doesn't it? it Especially does. all those plants that she's kind of referenced. Like, what was it, the Phacelia she talked about, or was it the Viper's Bugloss about being this cafe that's open for twenty-four hours a day? I love that.
1: <laughs> yes, right, coffee on tap, nectar on tap, yeah. And imagine, you know, and having a long tongue. What a, what an experience that would be to to wait, you know, because uh, some nect some nectaries do fill up in warmer weather, so you could be kind of flying over these things that you love the taste of, and then. Waiting for that hot day when the nectaries are full up, and then you zoom straight down and have a bit of that. You know, great. But what a what a life to be a bee.
0: I do recommend her book as well, Dancing with Bees. It's lovely. It's just kind of this wonderful journey into um, how she discovered them and how she's discovered the wealth um, of all the sort of different varieties of the species. Um, and everything but Chris I'm quite intrigued about how you planted up your place because you've got a lot of hives haven't you and you've got a lot of things growing so did you have you consciously planted for bees or have you just let it go and do its own thing or what?
1: A bit of both gathered I would say in a way I'm lucky to be on an organic farm near a spring so it's great good good water as well and I think land likes to from from the land's point of view I think it likes to change slowly And so I'm in a woodland, a sort of young woodland, and I've slowly brought in things that I know for biodiversity, but also that I know bees will like from around the farm and have planted other things. But, you know, actually, if you just leave a piece of land to go wild, it's great for bees. Uh, Thistles, for example, most people pull out. Bees love thistles. Uh, Ragwort, which you're not really supposed to let grow, but bees love that too. And, you know, hogweed, they're all on at the moment. Um, So many things, dandelions, brambles, things that you might not want in your garden uh, are actually really good for bees too. And most things here, like the burdocks that we let get really big, which might overtake someone's garden. But if you've got more space, let them grow. Bees have evolved for at least 40 million years with side by side with this great relationship to plants. So native pollinators, uh, the clues in the title, you know, if you let your land go native, uh, they will love it and have Uh, good forage
2: yeah and and although bridget was actually saying that even non-native plants are are beneficial as well and there aren't it doesn't have to be those specifically those native plants but um particularly single-headed uh flowers are they could be non-native or native Mm -hmm. but i also just was really interested in what she was saying about the 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 volume of, of flowers that you need obviously if you haven't got a huge garden it can be difficult to grow large patches of things but uh you know this approach that we put a little pocket of this and here and a little pocket there probably isn't enough for 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 the bees they need big areas and the honeybee particularly needs to you know it's looking for big patches of uh of, of plants, is it big fields of borage or big fields of oilseed rape or whatever?
0: I loved that point as well. I thought that was really well made. That kind of you know, don't just plonk plant. Um, you know, you need to pl- plant a lot of whatever it is. Because do you remember, Patrick, once when we were walking, I don't know, I think we were in Jersey or somewhere like that, but there was like a verge, but somebody had just put just nothing but I think it was thyme, but it, and it was very much a cultivated sort of variety in it. But it was absolutely a carpet of bees, was, wasn't it? It was, it was just. Just Gorgeous when you see it like that, but I take your point, Chris, about everything letting everything go wild. But um, we just have to say for our dear listeners that Patrick and I live together, so um, th- we last year um did that with our garden, we let it go wild. But it is, it's going to be for most people this question of how you keep that under yeah. control. Because this summer for us now, I'm seeing thistles coming up everywhere, and I'm afraid I am sort of putting them out because once you've let it go. Um, you've got to stick with it, haven't you? And it's this, it's just, it's hard, it's hard. But I suppose a wild patch, everybody can do a wild patch, maybe. That's that's more realistic.
1: Yeah, keep the thistles in one place. <laughs> keep them in one place. I mean, some thistles are more voracious than others, aren't they? Spear thistles especially are p- pretty dangerous, I'd say. And uh, But things like creeping thistles aren't so bad, but bees still love them. And the the lovely sort of nodding musk sort of nodding thistles that you get, especially bumblebees love those too. And they're often flowering also in the June gap. As are I mean, one thing we've planted here, uh, sushi bought me for a present once was a, a three small uh, shrubs. It was a, a Buddleia Buddleia globosa, mm. and they're brilliant because they're just coming to flower when all the hedgerows and and, and everything that has. We've had this great honey flow on now in May and it's just coming to an end and, and these buddleia, the globosa are just coming out and, and honeybees love those. And the, the purple Buddleia that everybody knows are great for butterflies and longer-tongued species but the, but the honeybees can't get in them. So for honeybees, this, this sort of yellow, small, spherical, flowered Buddleia, buddleia globosa are great and they've grown quite large and, and I love them. I'm not sure where they're from, South America, I think. And, uh, you know, and a good, you know, a good shrub will just get bigger and bigger until it's its full size. And, you know, if you plant one lavender plant here and one sort of thyme bush over there, like you said, bees. And as Bridget said, bees might might not bother because there's not enough um, enough of it. But a shrub will, will get to a good size where bees will, will be all over it because there are lots of flowers on, on one plant.
2: That's right and actually um that's one thing that I was thinking as well uh, You go further trees um Bridget I don't think mentioned it in, in the interview but trees are just a massive benefit you know you've got horse chestnut um you've got the the uh, fruit trees fruit trees and uh and the limes and and all those sort of things and and a, and a tree standing there can be you know have as many flowers on as a small meadow you know so Great um, yes. this is, this is an, another thing about you know, the focus is often on these lower plants in the garden. And actually, we need to look at, you know, what what the trees can offer as well.
0: Brilliant. Well, look, lots to think about. And actually, that, what I really like is that it also draws your eye to everything when you're like out walking and things like that. You know, you notice the plants that are flowering that might have bees attracted to them, and that's something else. You know, you bring that back to your garden, don't you? Go out and take little nature notes. But let's wrap up for now, and um, we'll be back soon, won't we, with, with our next episode. We've got all sorts of people in the pipeline, but give us some names.
2: We've got uh, Norman Carrick, Martin Benchik. That was a good
0: one, wasn't it? The bees in the cello.
2: So listen in to the next episode of Living Being.
0: See everybody soon. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for listening. Cheerio. Be well.